a series of messages that uh, is, is just one of those series that I just believe the Lord has directed our attention to at this time. If you're part of the church, you know that we will normally spend most of our time teaching through books of the Bible, letters of the Bible uh, that are before us to learn from and benefit from as we just study through Scripture and living our lives. But there would be also moments where we feel like the Lord has specific word and there's a timing to plant certain seeds and water certain truths in our lives. And I just feel like this is a very important season for us to receive some insight. And I've entitled the series, Walking in Newness of Life. And because I think that phrase captures some of the challenge that's before us in, in living the Christian life and walking in the Christian life. I think it'd be accurate for us to say that the Christian life is more about a, a new and different life than it is about a new way of life. I can say it that way. The Christian life is more about a new and different life coming to us than it is about a new way of life that we are approaching. And you can misplace that very, very easily. You know, in the world that we live in, most of what we hear, and I think most of what sometimes is communicated in the church, is more about moral reform than it is about a new life coming onto a scene where that life was not present before. And even though I think if we've been saved for very long, read in the Bible for very long, we would agree with that. But there's just this tendency in us to drift from it very, very quickly. And next thing you know, we're into moral reform. We're into trying to adjust the outsides of us and a diminished view of what is going on on the inside. A new life has come in here. And, and I, I said this a couple of weeks ago. I don't sufficiently understand that to be comfortable with what I just said. I know I've got a lot to learn about the spirit of God's presence and indwelling interacting with me and leading me and affecting me and prompting who I'm ever going to be in my life. That's there's some just some mystery in that. And, you know, if you've prayed, and you've sought God's will and you've sought to live a life that pleases God in any way, you'll know that that sometimes you're wrestling. To, OK, is this God? Is it me? You're trying to figure out which roommate on the inside is responsible for what's going on right now. And so there is some challenge here. And, and I want to, I want to, I'm going to give a little bit larger of an introduction this morning because I want to make sure we see the importance of our need in this category. I had a, a conversation. It was an absolutely delightful conversation. To my surprise, I walked in and uh, to the office the other day after running off to, to lunch and my cousin was here and he's a few years older than me and and I had heard that he had gotten saved about a year and a half ago and he and I just crossed paths very briefly a while ago and it's like he just pulled me to the side at a funeral and said man I just I need to tell you about this and he just shared real briefly with me so we had good intentions to try and get together again so he was just in the neighborhood just thought he'd pop in and as I talked to him and just listened Oh, to listen to the grace of God in another person's life. And his, his play-by-play of what happened in his life was extraordinary. He had been diagnosed with cancer. 
And so he went through a, a time where there just was awakened in him a sense of, of need beyond his own abilities. And so he began to interact a bit differently with God. And this would not have been a man who would have grown up in church settings like this. He would have been very traditionally oriented, similar to my background. And just not familiar with this idea of being born again and this Holy Spirit coming. Now, now familiar with stories from the Bible, familiar with religious settings, familiar with buildings and stained glass and all the things that we associate with religion, but not familiar with God coming into one's life. And so one night he begins to feel something's happening. The next morning he wakes up and literally, I don't know if I remember somebody giving me such a detailed play by play. He said he woke up the next morning and he knew something was happening to him. And he was in his room by himself and his wife actually came in and he, he had to send her out of the room. He said, can you, can you just leave me alone? Some, something is happening to me. I don't know that many of us can identify the moment where we were being born again. He was being born again. The Spirit of God was coming, coming into his life in this moment. And then he begins to talk about the effect that that had upon him in days ahead. These patterns of his life. Now, he is not a guy who's, who all these years was, you know, was raised by mom and dad reading the Bible. So it's like all of a sudden everything that he knew to do, he began to do. No, no, no. He didn't know anything to do. He didn't have a script to follow. And he begins to talk about how his life just began to change. And this pattern of pursuits and desires just went away. And then this one went away. I didn't want that anymore. And I wanted this. And, and I knew exactly what he was describing. And many of you know exactly what he was describing in that moment. This, this new presence of God was on the inside providing these internal motivations that weren't being imposed on him. He, you know, he didn't have... He, and then I'll take this right, please. He didn't have a covenant group telling him, Hey, man, you need to stop doing that, man. You can't, you can't really do that anymore and call yourself a Christian. You know, he didn't have any of that going on in his life. But something on the inside was beginning to constrain the desires of his life in a different way. And you know, as he's telling me that, I, mean, I, I flash back to my own conversion of being saved. And I've told you guys a lot of this before. You know, I was a teenager who was just looking to have a party everywhere I could and looking for fun. And so, you know, every weekend was an opportunity. I was a young teenager, so I didn't have any money. So it was an opportunity to mooch off people who did. And so I sought to find settings where I could get free alcohol and drugs. I wasn't old enough to buy it. And, and you know, so... Every weekend, I would find myself in those settings where the only reason why I'm here amongst all these older guys and gals was, was so that I could party with them for free. And that's one weekend. And then the next weekend, uh, God's doing a work in my heart. I, I go to a church meeting and I get saved. And again, I, I don't have, nobody gives me a big long playbook and says, okay, hey, hey, oof, time out here, dude. There's a whole new moral code now, now that you've signed on. Listen, we can't have you going out there and embarrassing us with what you used to do every weekend, okay? So can we talk about that a bit? Well, I don't know any of that stuff. So the next weekend, it's time to make plans. I only got one set of friends, so I make plans to go out with them. So here we are and at the party, 
And I can remember this moment. I can remember exactly where I was. I can remember sitting in the car. I can remember turning the corner. I'm one block away from my home. Usually at this point, one block away from my home, I'm being dropped off by somebody because I'm not old enough to drive. But I'm going to need to figure out how to run the gauntlet past my parents because, you know, my eyes look like, you know, they're on fire. And I smell like marijuana. And um, I'm, I'm drunk. Or, you know, there's something about me that's obvious. And I'm thinking, okay, how do I get past the guards <laughs> and just get to my room and go to bed, you know? So, I mean, anything, I would pick up pine needles in the backyard and, you know, rub them all over my body. I mean, I, I had a whole system. So I'm a block away. And this is usually when the early warning alert system goes off. You need a plan. You need a plan. And, and all of a sudden it dawns on me. I'm not stoned. I didn't drink anything. It's like the Lord let me see. He actually let me see pictures of, this is when we had the little Miller ponies. You guys remember those things? Uh, ice boxes opened with Miller ponies. All of a sudden, for the first time that evening, I'm seeing them. I didn't even recognize they were there. There had been such a change in my heart that there was no desire for those things anymore in my life. I mean, I went from party lifestyle to never ever again getting drunk in my life. And not because anybody came and imposed that on me and said, hey, dude, dude, we need to cover some new ground here. But because something on the inside of me was informing my life. And when I listened to my cousin say that, I thought, oh, yes, Lord. Now, when you turn, turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36, I think what I've just described is what God was speaking of in Ezekiel. This coming incredible day that would occur, and it would sound like this. Verse 23, God says, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I was experiencing that day. My cousin was describing that day when God would do such a work on the inside. Now, what was curious then and still curiously informing was I had heard about God before that moment. I had heard about Jesus Christ before that moment. I could tell you about the cross before that moment. I'd heard of someone called the Holy Spirit before that moment. There were a lot of things that I had heard about. I had never experienced that. So immediately in my own life, I can see you can know a lot of things on the outside and never know this on the inside. 
And how many religious settings, that's exactly what's going on. People aren't experiencing God on the inside of their life, but they're there and they're listening to teachings and they're trying to confine their life within some level of morality and define where they agree and where they don't agree, etc. Listen, this is not just tradition-bound churches where this could be a problem. This is a problem for us because there's an element in us that, that loves to go external. It's, it's like it's built into us somehow. We love to go external. We love to live at the level of the surface of who we are, not in the depth of who God has made us to be. So I, I'm not trying to preach this for those of us who, who just came out of tradition-based religious backgrounds. This, this, is, this is for me many years later in my walk with God. So here God gives this amazing, and this is what's coming. There's coming a day, God says through Ezekiel, where this is what it's going to look like for my people. It's going to be different than what we've been seeing in their lives previous. But is that what's happening for us? There are substitutes out there. There are other ways to do Christianity. They're not the right way, but there are other ways. And one of them is, is this, what I'm going to call externalized religion. I put a formula in here. This is my engineering degree, desperately trying to get used. (laughs) Externalized religion equals the practice of the law plus good intentions and self-effort. The practice of the law plus good intentions and self-effort. That would be, in my estimation, externalized religion. Now, please don't make the practice of the law for us who live in this modern age, whether or not we ceremonially wash our hands, whether we slay animals, whether we burn incense. Okay, that, that was what was available then. Today, what is available are things like covenant group meetings and attending church and reading your Bible and the mortification of sin. Uh, right? All these things can become practices. They're the, they're the available practices for you. You've never seen anybody slay an animal in this building or any other building we've ever been in. Right? You're not tempted at all to do that. You're not tempted to find your ability to draw near to God based on burning of incense. Well, some of you came from a background. You might do that. Um, slaying animals or purification is the way you wash. So you're not tempted to do that. Your temptations are in a different category. You have a different code of law. And then you marry to that code of law, good intentions. I'm doing this for good reasons and self-effort. And if you're not careful, you have externalized religion. Now, I want to poke on a couple of possibilities here and I'll try to do this quickly. How do you know if I've been doing that? I don't know if I've been externalizing my religion. This is why I'm going to take a few minutes in this because I I think most of us immediately dismiss the idea that we are to our own detriment and to our own confusion. Last week when we talked about, two weeks ago, symptoms that our walk isn't working right that I think most of us, if we were humble enough, would admit that happens and there are seasons of that. But why is it happening? Well, I think much of it is happening because we have externalized our religion. And Ezekiel 36 is having a hard time being the cornerstone of how we walk this out. All right, how do I know? Here's a few examples. Well, first, the presence of condemnation, guilt, and frustration. You can read this with me. I put some thoughts that I wanted you to take home with you. The meditating emphasis is on your efforts and failures. You are more aware of your responsibilities and your need to do 
than of you having been fully qualified and accepted by God. Now, please, please notice what I said. You are more aware. It's not that you are not aware. It's not that I, I want to make sure I don't lose half the audience right now. Because half of us who have a little bit of theological informing know that we're accepted by God. Right? We, we know that. Keith, thanks for not breaking any news to us today. Are you more aware, though, on a daily basis of your responsibilities in this relationship equation? Your failures, your taking up the mantle of what God has called you to as one of his people. Are you more aware of that? Well, if you are, and maybe you're wondering, well, I don't know if I am. Well, do you, do you struggle with condemnation? Do you, do you have guilt frequently? You feel guilty? You feel like you're falling short? Do you feel frustrated? Anybody here who's, who, who would say, if I had an altar call for angry people right now, I can usually, we could always fill the front of the room up. So if, you, if you've just been angry, usually anger and frustration, they're just connected. And you know, there's, there's this thing about the Christian life, it's like somebody invented a really bad deal here. Because the Christian life actually increases the opportunity for you to feel condemned. It gives you more to do. And so therefore, the more you try, the more you can actually have something to fail at. Right? I mean, all of a sudden, you come into Christianity and there's statements that are made, and I make some of them. There's statements that are made about what movie you're watching, not watching. What TV show you're watching, whether you're watching any TV, whether you even own a TV. It's like all of a sudden, you can feel guilty about all those things. Your children, how you're raising your children. You know, the people in the world are just trying to raise their children to stay out of jail and be decent human beings. No, no, not Christians. Ours need to be these walking on water, incredible individuals, and they need to be, they need to be saved. They need to, they, you know, it's not enough that you're a nice guy. You've got to be saved. I mean, we feel the weight of their salvation in our lives. We have great opportunities as part of the kingdom of God to share the gospel, right? To bring the gospel into other people's lives, opportunities to serve that will further gospel opportunities in people's lives. But what if you're not doing that? I mean, you know, the average guy driving down Veterans Highway right now isn't thinking, oh, I'm just not sharing the gospel enough. Just not, you know. I'm not, I'm not praying enough. I'm not reading my Bible enough. The, the, he's, just, he's just trying to get to the Hornets game, you know. That's what's on his mind. I'm late. That's about it. But for you, you have this nagging sense of, oh, how many days behind him? This is February. I'm so many days behind in my Bible reading plan for 2009. And you have this failure sense. Now, those might not be big things to you, but when you take one of them after another, after another, after another, and you you link them to your parenting successes and whether you attended this meeting or not and whether your covenant group leader looked at you twice because he knows you didn't attend the men's retreat. And, you know, all these things kind of just load up. Right? You have this sense of guilt, condemnation, and frustration. You want to know why you rip some people's heads off? Because they're giving you, they're, they're the one bringing the straw that breaks the camel's back. They happen to be the sad delivery boy for that straw. They just, they just said a little thing to you. But for you, it's the 64th thing in your mind you failed at, and someone just kind of says, you know, honey, if you would just do the toothpaste, you know, ah! <laughs> I mean, just rage comes out of you because you're living a frustrated life. And Christianity seems to make it worse, doesn't it? I mean, can't we just not care what anybody wears and what anybody sees? I mean, watch the most vile stuff. Come naked if you want. I mean, just make this thing just real simple for everybody. Right? Nobody needs to feel bad about anything anymore. 
Okay, now, by the way, that's not the solution. Now, please, please remember that when you come dress next week. Not not the solution. (laughs) Uh, I'm not going to go any further down that road. Here, look in your outline. Jerry Bridges says, Moreover, we are always challenging ourselves and one another to try harder. We seem to believe success in the Christian life, however we define success, is basically up to us. Our discipline and our zeal with some help from God along the way. Now listen, nobody says this. No one's walking into a covenant group meeting to say this. You know, hey guys, I just want to encourage everybody. You know, you've got to do your part. I mean, listen, you know God's going to kick in a little bit here. It's not going to be much. I don't want you to expect a whole lot from God. I mean, this is up to you. Okay, no one walks into a covenant group meeting and say that. But we live it and we feel it. You you know, sometimes our orthodoxy never meets our practice. Well, if I'm living that, I'm feeling it. Even if on the library of my theology somewhere is, no, God is big and I am small. That's great on the shelf. But in your life, if you are big and God is small, then you're frustrated. You feel condemned. You're failing it a lot. And you're very aware of that because you're the feature one in this equation. You're outlining the last thing on that point. It says, beware. Striving for sanctification can result in a greater focus on your actions and attitudes than on God's. Okay, now, you guys still open Ezekiel 36 there? I'm not going to do this, but I encourage you to just take notice of it. If you want to start in verse 22, and then just as you go on, just with your eyes, can you see how many times the word I is there? Just glance at it. It'll jump out at you all over the place. I, I, I. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Who's the I in this? It's God. Right? Ezekiel 36 is describing a day when God is the focal point. We are not the focal point. And we will fight God for being the focal point, but we are not. A couple other quick possibilities. How about the presence of pride in identifying whether we are externalizing our religion? Good intentions and self-effort are things that I attribute to myself. Therefore, I begin to conclude that my spiritual growth or my success is unavoidably rooted in me. Now, listen, again, I'm just, I'm just putting to words what we're really saying in our heart that we will never say with our mouth. We'll never walk in again into a covenant group meeting and, and saying, guys, I just, just want you to know I am on a hot streak, man. <laughs> I mean, I am seeing, I, I, you know, I, my devotion life is just rocking and it is transforming me. I mean, I... I am, I am a fire. I'm on fire, man, because I'm doing this and I'm doing this. I'm doing this. We know don't come out sounding that way. Somebody will pound you, but it can be kind of how we feel, especially when the fire goes out, especially when things get hard. You all of a sudden you start thinking about how much you're responsible for some of that. And see if somehow I've got a code and my best intentions and self-effort, if, if my best intentions and self-effort are too big in this equation, well, then fruit, when fruit gets produced, I cannot escape the, the consequence of taking credit for it. Now, if that's in me, I, this could have been a long list, but I'm trying to move through some of these things quickly. Uh, evidence of this kind of pride can be seen, one, in my tendency to compare. 
And I'm, I'm trying to help us with this because sometimes we say, you know, do you have that going on? Well, you know, I don't know if I have that going on in my life, but you know, I'm not probably about that. Okay, let me see if I can help you a little bit. Do you have a tendency to compare? Do you compare yourself to others? Do you battle with jealousy? Do you find yourself competing with other people who might be in your category, station of life, similar to you in some way? Do you, do you wrestle with jealousy issues? See, that, that would be because your efforts in this equation need to be featured more. You want to be seen as successful. You know, if, uh, if two people that God is touching... And he is raising up a testimony through their lives, and it is bringing glory to God. You know, I, I'm, I'm kind of not on either anybody's side in this, am I? I mean, I'm, this is for the glory of God. It's so exciting. Boom in this person, and then boom in this person. Great. That's exciting. I'm not competing with that until it's not about the glory of God anymore. It's about my effort and my transformation due to my effort. Now, if you start getting more transformed than me, now I'm competing with you because you must have a secret. You must be doing something I'm not doing. You must be more willing to do it than I'm willing to do it. See, now, now I can compete with you, which makes for a real fun time of fellowship. Second problem. <laughs> Evidence of this pride can be seen in my impatience with others' struggles and weaknesses. Right? Listen, when we come across somebody who, who is struggling in an area... For the 10th time, oh man, we've just had it with that person. See, there's an element in us that's not seeing objectively the grace of God in that person's life and the grace of God in my life. So the mere fact that that storyline's not being played out in my life, it's not because of me, it's because of the grace of God. Now, I've lost sight of that. I'm thinking that, why don't you just do what I do and you won't be like that? That's what really is in me. You know, if you just, you know, th this is why you're having, you won't read your Bible. You won't pray, which, you know, I'm, I'm doing that. I'm doing that. You know, you won't do it, though. And that's why you're the way you are. See, in that moment, I've dismissed the idea that I am being, tra I am being transformed by the grace of God. By Ezekiel chapter 36. God says, I'm going to take out of you the stony heart. It's not your spiritual disciplines that did that. It's not your self-effort that did that. I'm going to do it. I'm going to take out of you that, that explosive device in you that feeds your desires for fleshly pursuits. I'm going to take it out of you. I'm going to put in you a heart of flesh that's soft. And I'm going to write upon your heart desires. And they're going to be so profound and effective that it's going to cause you to walk in my ways. So that when I actually start walking in, my, in God's ways, I'm recognizing this is just Ezekiel 36. This is what this is. So when I bump into somebody else who's not where I am, I'm not impatient with them. It's a very different analysis. And so, you know, is there the presence of pride? Third, the pursuit of passing pleasures. I particularly want to hone in on this one for a second. The pursuit of passing pleasures. How do you know if you've externalized your religion? Well, because you are pursuing passing pleasures. This occurs because external religion can never be internally satisfying. God has wired us, according to Ezekiel 36, to experience His life through the portals of grace and the Spirit. When that's not occurring, we will seek pleasure and soul satisfaction through other venues. Okay, now listen, listen very carefully. I'm, I'm, 
how can I, should I sit down on a sofa here right now? Should I, should I just, I, I'm, I'm trying to say this in a way that is not antagonistically going to be perceived as being against some of you. But there would be a growing contingency of individuals here who are struggling with pursuing the passing pleasures of this world. Did I say that nice enough? There's a word a couple of weeks ago about folks being lukewarm. Um, in this church, if you do that and you are not a theological moron, you will, you will draw the grace of God into your pursuit. Okay? You will say, well, I'm under grace. You know, I'm free in Christ. Okay, can, I, can I approach something about that this morning? That I think for some folks, that's become a launching pad. This is going to launch me into the pursuit of pleasure that has its roots in the world, in these surface areas of the flesh. And we do that because we're under grace. Okay, I, I, I think that's sad and it's terribly theologically uninformed. Because if the grace of God does anything in my life, the grace of God allows me to draw near to God. Okay, before that time, I couldn't have access to God. Listen, go out and find all the gusto you can because you ain't getting no gusto from God. You don't have access to God. You are apart from God. You are hostile to God. And God is opposing you and you are under his wrath. That's who you are before you're saved. So apart from the grace of God, you don't get to drink of the delights of God. But now when you get saved, grace opens a way so that that's exactly what you get to do now. So it doesn't really make sense that grace would open the way to God and then we would find our way to run after other passing pleasures, often sinful pleasures in our lives. And so, you know, if you're finding yourself in that category, I really want you to think with me for a moment. Your outline, it says, the reality of pursuing fleshly pleasure is not because I'm finding my pleasure in God, but rather I'm bored with God. And my life doesn't have enough pleasure in it. See, if Ezekiel 36 isn't going on on the inside of your life and you're living on the surface, deep down inside of you, you are not satisfied. You are quite bored. And so we just adjust our lives to absorb more pleasure into it. But the pleasure we often pursue is fleshly pleasure. It's temporary pleasure. See, grace enables me to draw near to God. You guys ever visited Psalm 73? Psalm 73, you find a guy, I'll tell you what, you go back and visit that. I will try and constrain our talk this morning. Psalm 73 highlights an individual who opens up the psalm saying, my feet had almost slipped. This is a guy who related to God. He says, I was in a place in my life where my feet had almost slipped. I was envious of the unrighteous. I lifted up my eyes and I saw the way in which they in the world lived and I thought... They got it better than me. He describes how their bodies are. He describes the, the, the giving themselves to indulgences. And yet they seem to be having a great time. And I begin to envy the unrighteous, he says. And then he gets halfway through the psalm and he says, until. There was a moment for him where he stopped envying the, the unrighteous. That moment he says, until I came into the sanctuary of God. Now the whole story is about to change. What happens in the sanctuary of God? See, this is what grace does. Grace lets me into the sanctuary of God. Grace lets me get near to God. So when he gets near to God, all of a sudden he sees 
That which I thought was so great, I should go after that. It's so wonderful. Look at the fun that they're having. Was because I was not enjoying the presence of God. I was away from the presence of God. So until I draw near to God, those things are going to be enamoring to me. So grace hasn't opened the way so that I might run towards fleshly pleasure. Grace has opened the way for me to draw near to God. Now, when he draws near to God, he begins to say, I realized I was insane. (laughs) I was brutish in my thinking. It's like a beast. What on earth was I thinking? And then he begins to talk about God. And he ends up concluding, you know, the, the nearness of God is my good. You know, of things on earth, I desire nothing besides you, God. And he begins to see, he begins to feel differently about the surroundings that he's in. Right? And this would be, this would be frequent. Right? If I were to just look real quickly at that psalm in Psalm 36. Listen to this incredible description of God. This is what grace exposes us to. Grace pulls back the veil and lets us behold this. Verse 7. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. See, this is what grace exposes you to. Grace exposes you to that Psalm 27. One thing have I desired and that will I seek after. Boy, I mean, I've stripped my life down. I'm after one thing because I've tasted it and it is so good. I want more. One thing. Now, now here's where, you know, in preaching and and, and being pastors here, our, our goal is, is not to seek to be controlling and, and shaping of externals in your life. You know, okay, what can I say from the pulpit to get you to stop seeing R-rated movies? What can I say from the pulpit or encourage in a covenant group or talk to you in counseling to get you to stop hanging out in bars? What can I say to convince you or shame you or pressure you from the outside to get you to stop flirting with fornication on your way to being married. What, what can I do to accomplish that? Okay. If that's what we're after, then we have missed something. Drastically, terribly, terribly missed something. Because if the reason you stop doing those things is because finally you got shamed into it. Somebody pressed you on the outside and, and you are, 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 you're sort of under peer pressure now. You're afraid the pastors will frown on you. You feel awkward to be around this, so I'm going to stop doing that. So, uh, What we would be after would look more, from Ezekiel 36, it would look more like Psalm 36. I'm partaking of a feast There's a fountain of delights. I'm experiencing the presence and life of God. Listen, when that happens, Keith no longer attends the party for the same reasons ever again. Ever again. Not because I got a script to follow. Not because my small group leader met with me when I got saved. Not because a pastor from that church came and visited me and told me, Listen, I don't know what you're up to, dude. But I'm looking at you and you look like a pot smoker, stealing, lying kid. That's what you look like to me. So can I talk to you about not doing those things anymore? No one's doing that. 
But Ezekiel 36 is happening. And my question, this, this should be more alarming. This should be more alarming than having a desire for those things. Having a desire for passing pleasures of sin shouldn't, shouldn't surprise any of us. Right? Until I live in a glorified body, man, I am hardwired like an antenna. I'm absorbing every message that can come my way. I want everything in the world. This flesh is still fallen. So I shouldn't be surprised if I have an appetite for those things. What should alarm me and greatly concern me is my lack of appetite for God. He bores me. That thrills me. Now listen, if I'm a pastor and I can press your buttons and get you to stop, take your hands off of that girlfriend of yours, and I can give you a lot of wise reasons as to why you ought to do that, but if the only reasons you got are external ones, they got some strange, I kissed this goodbye in this church, and they got all these dating regulations. I mean, it's like you have a graduate course degree in how to even look at a girl in this church. Uh, you know, if that's where you're living, okay, we have sadly missed what we were supposed to be aiming at. Something on the inside of you should be exploding with desire. That looks a certain way when you go to live it out. If that's not there, and listen, I'm very tempted and I realize I've got to preach in this pulpit next week and I have to live in this church for two years. So, you know, I can't destroy everything of truth just to make this point. But part of me wants to strip away all the boundaries and say, go do whatever you want. Go do whatever you want. Want to sleep with your girlfriend? Go ahead. What? That the new rule here? Sure. Go ahead. Want to go hang out in the bars? Go ahead. See, now, what, what you would do with that freedom is you'd actually get in touch with the fact that there's some motivation in you that's not present. So this is the wonderful adventure of living the Christian life under an Ezekiel 36 revelation. Everything I'm doing should be what I want to do. If God really is at work, if he's taken out of me a stony heart, he's given me a heart of flesh and he's written upon me and he's working in me and he's given me a spirit and he will cause me to walk in, my st- in his statutes. If that's true, then whatever I'm doing should be because I want to do it. I've found this compelling desire in my heart. I guarantee you, I didn't show up the next week with, you know, blinders on, you know, just sit me up in the corner, just you know, tie my hands. Oh, I want a beer so bad. Oh, I'll keep the marijuana away from me. Oh, so hard to say no to that. You know, I didn't want it because God had done something and I was too stupid to understand the script at that point. I was walking around going, ooh, ooh, let's see. This would be a good opportunity to fake Ezekiel 36, you know, um, you know, all my Christian friends would be really impressed if I just kind of sounded like the Bible here and said those things. I don't really like those things. But, you know, this is the group I'm trying to fit in with. See, you know, so I go to covenant group and I say all the right things on the outside. <laughs> Listen, this is Christianity. I'm describing church, guys. And what a sad thing we're missing. God had something much more severe in mind, much more enamoring, much more exploding on the inside of us, much more effective much more wild and amazing in our hearts than what we've let happen. That was the introduction. (laughs) I warned you it would be a long introduction. 
All right, let me set before you a couple thoughts here. And again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk through this in the next few messages so I don't feel the need to say everything this morning. So you can relax. We don't have another hour here. <laughs> you know, there's a, an amazing thing. If we go back to Ezekiel 36, today I just want, I want to feature something that's in the beginning of this passage. It is the entranceway into this life. And it is the entranceway of the grace of God. And I'm using familiar terms, but let's not fall in love with these terms as though we really get them. Ezekiel 36, verse 24. God says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will do that. Now the question is, why does God do this? Why does God gather these particular people from all these lands and bring them into a land of blessing? Why does he do that? Now, remember the resume of this group of people at this point. I think I put in your outline 600 years. That's wrong. It's 850 years at this point. 850 years from Mount Sinai to the exile in Babylon. 850 years of this. We love you, we love the world. We love you, we love the world. We love you, we love Asherah. We love you, we love Baal. We love... This has been their life. 850 years of fickled weirdos hanging around God. And God comes along and says, I will gather you. God, why? Why? Are we having a good day? No. They're in exile right now. It's finally come to the point where God has to bring forth a conqueror to take him captive and burn the temple to the ground. You remember Isaiah had said 200 years earlier, oh, that you just shut the doors on this thing and go away. That's what God said through Isaiah. You're bringing me all these sacrifices. You're, you're honoring me with your lips. You keep going through the motions with my festivals. I wish you'd just shut the door. They wouldn't shut the door. So God shut the door. Nebuchadnezzar was a doorman. He came and burned the temple down and shut the doors on this thing. So this is not a good day, right? This is not God saying, finally, finally, you guys are taking me serious. You're putting off these sinful patterns and you're, and you're after me. Finally, I'm going to gather you now and I'm going to bless you and bring you all here. Do you understand? That's not what God does right here. As a matter of fact, it was never what God did with Israel. If you go back to God, even selecting them from Deuteronomy, Why? Why does God choose you, Israel? Oh, it's not because of you, oh, Israel, as though you were this profound group and large. No, no, as a matter of fact, you were the smallest. But here's this circular thinking in Deuteronomy 7. But God set his love on you and blessed you because he loves you. Really? Does that sound a little strange to... So God says, I'm doing this act of love for you because I love you. Do you find any reason in them? None. You find God by his own reasonings, by his own internal grace, deciding, I will bless you. Listen, this is wonderfully informing because if God ever had to wait for a day for us to motivate him to bless us, that day would never come. Do not be ignorant of what the Bible says about you and I. We're too impressed with ourselves. We think, oh, no, 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 wait, 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 whoa, time out. That sounds, that sounds horrible. I'm a, I'm a pretty decent person. You know, I mean, I have some good days. I know I have some bad days, but I have some good days too. Okay, listen, that's not how the Bible talks about us. And it's not how God is described either. God is much greater than we ever thought, and we are much worse than we ever thought. 
So in that equation, God's never going to find in us this wonderfully loving motivation. And 850 years prove that. They never would get it right. But God says, I'm going to come and bless you anyway. So from the outset, it is the grace of God. Why does this matter to curing external religion? Here's why. Because external religion ultimately wants to put our sense of confidence and future blessings on the basis of our performance versus God's grace. I mean, there are some of us sitting here this morning. We hadn't been on a hot streak lately. There hasn't been significant growth. Our devotion life stinks. And and we're thinking I haven't deposited enough coins in the God machine to expect anything to come flying out in my life. That's what we're thinking. Can Can you just back yourself up against a group of people that for 850 years only gave God one motivation to fry them from the face of the earth? That's what they were good at. And God turns around and says, but I'm going to give you grace that you don't deserve. See, you know, couldn't that happen to you this morning? In spite of the condition of your life. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. Okay, and the New Testament wonderfully informs us about this cleansing. Let me just lead us through a couple of questions here. What is the basis of God's cleansing and forgiving us? Is, is it good behavior? Does God cleanse us and forgive us because we've got good behavior? We have less sinning going on, more self-sacrifice, more sharing of the gospel, more parting with our money, more giving up our time to help others. I will therefore now cleanse you and forgive you. Is that the basis? No, it's not. The basis for God cleansing and forgiving us, Hebrews 9, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. None. This this is a this is a fun concept, isn't it? In a modern age, if blood isn't shed, you will never be forgiven. Now, now, right here, this is one of those things where the Bible just said something that should should be messing with you right now. Because what religions are shedding blood today in order to get forgiveness? I remember having this conversation. My wife and I were in Acapulco on our honeymoon, and we had dinner with a couple who was a Jewish couple from Philadelphia. And I remember asking him the question because we talked about all the Old Testament sacrifices and blah, blah, blah. And I remember asking them the question, so, so what do you guys do now to get forgiveness? <laughs> right? I mean, the shedding of blood in the Old Testament, which, by the way, really didn't grant them forgiveness. It just delayed God's judgment onto the one who would give them forgiveness. So it was sort of like a credit card system, if you will. Each year they had to swipe and the bill got more and more and more. And then later on, there would be one who would come who would shed his blood and pay the whole thing. So that's how that system actually worked. But when you ask them that, it's kind of like, well, well you know, we just kind of don't do that anymore. Well, why not? I mean, it's, well, you know, part of the reason is because, hey, you know, we just don't slay animals where we come from, you know? We just, it's just uncouth. It's just not what you do in modern culture. Right, listen, you know, I'm, I'm seeing modern culture. I'm seeing Oprah freak out over, over homosexuality being disapproved of by the Bible. It's kind of like, man, isn't that so Neanderthalish? I mean, how can you think that way in this age where all the laws are changing? Well, I think she'd love the idea that, well, um, by the way, without blood being spilt all over the place, no one gets forgiven either. <laughs> That is so old, I can't... No, 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 that's what the Bible says. 
Now, either we throw the Bible away or we stop and think, wow, that's what it says. 1 John 1, verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that what Ezekiel said? I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you, and you're going to be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. This is, this is what God was talking about. Okay, now, question for us. Which sins are cleansed and forgiven, and which ones are not? Now, think with me for a second, because don't you have in your mind this division line here? Before I was a Christian, we can talk about our sin in a certain way. It's like we did all these horrible things, and we, oh, you know, and I got saved, and God forgave me. And then you start sinning on the other side. What are they, like a different quality of sin, right? You feel differently about these, don't you? And now it's so hard to go to God. I know he knows what I've been doing. I don't even want to talk about it. You know, I've been doing this. I've been failing at this again and again. But, you know, it's amazing. We can share our testimony and look back on all of our sin before conversion and go, and God just forgave me of all that. And we get on this side, and it's somehow we just can't seem to appropriate forgiveness on this side. And then maybe you've appropriated forgiveness of the ones that have gotten far enough away from you. But what about the ones that you did yesterday? They're still fresh. You walked in here today. They're fresh. The paint has not even dried on that stinking thing. And you're very aware of it. And you're very aware that you're probably going to do it again tomorrow. And now my question, did those sins get paid for? Because you have a problem on your hand if you have this line in your life. Here's, here's a helpful picture. Way back here, the beginning of the modern era, they call A.D., the cross of Christ stands. At a moment in time, Jesus Christ goes to the cross... And in that moment, he takes upon him all the sin that he will pay for is placed upon him in that moment. Now, let's just fast forward here. Here's the cross. Remember, it's right there. We fast forward here. Here's the first portion of your life before you're saved. All these sins, right, are are put upon Christ, right, back here. Now, remember, when he goes to the cross in the time that man lives in, you don't even exist yet. None of your sins exist yet, but in God, they do. So... He takes those and he puts them on. Now, question, what did he do with the ones on the other side of being saved? Where where did those sins go? Remember, the ones that we haven't even done yet, what, what happened to those? Remember, when Jesus goes to the cross, we hadn't done any of these yet. They were all in the future. They were all going to happen, but they had not happened yet. But yet God saw them, so he put them on his son. Which ones? He put all of them. Can you just stay with me for a second? If somehow there's this big hand from God and he swoops into your life and he grabs all the sin and places it on his son, but, you know, he was a little hasty and he missed one. Just one right there stayed. Do you know what's going to happen to you? You will now face the wrath of God for the rest of your life for that one sin. Because God will judge every sin. It's it's who he is. He will judge every sin. If he somehow missed one of yours, you're in bad shape. Now, here's why you're in ultimate, desperate, bad, no hope shape. 
because there was only one act. See, the credit card thing is gone. And there was only one act that ever could have forgiven your sin. It was the shedding of the perfect man's blood. Only one. The bulls and goats thing, we'll see. Didn't forgive sins. It didn't take them away. They were being prepared to put on Christ. Now, he's done. He's not coming back again for that. He will never go to the cross again. He will never spill an ounce of his blood. So if somehow one of your sins missed the collection moment, you never have a hope that that can ever be atoned for ever in your life. So when you're struggling, now why am I doing this? Because when you're struggling with relating to God, what you're thinking is this sin I just committed this past week, the one that's real recent and fresh, it's disqualifying me from being with God. I can't get around God, you see. Okay, how are you going to fix that? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the Bible more, and I'm going to... Well, so you're going to kind of self-atone for it? You know, show me here anywhere where we get cleansing and forgiveness of our sins by good works, more sacrifice, more effort on your part. The Bible doesn't say that. It says there's only one way to be forgiven of those sins. It's by blood being shed. And there's only one man who ever shed blood that could ever forgive anybody. And it was Christ. And if somehow your sin that you are so enamored with right now escaped that, then you're worse off than you ever have thought. But to kind of put yourself in this no man's land of, I feel bad, I can't go to God, I don't want to do this anymore, but I can't go to God. That's terrible theology. Terrible theology. And it's paralyzing you. And you don't have much hope that you're ever going to be done with that sin because it's the grace of God that opens the way to the life of the Spirit. If I'm going to walk in newness of life, it's going to be because grace has put me in a place where now the Spirit can operate in me and I can be changed by His presence. How are we doing here? Which sins are cleansed and forgiven and which ones are not? Colossians, again, tells us all, all of them. 1 John, all of them. What place do these sins maintain in our relationship with God? None. In our relationship with God, none. Hebrews 8, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Right? No more. No more is God recollecting these sins so that he might respond to us based on them. That's what that word actually means in the Greek. God is not being provoked and fashioned and shaped as to how he will relate to us based on our sin. It wasn't true back in Ezekiel 36 either, was it? God should never have offered this Cadillac deal to these people. But he did. Because he chose. I will vindicate my name. And if you read all of Ezekiel 36, God passionately says, guys, it's not for you. It's not based in you. It's not because of you. I'm doing this. I'm choosing to do this. Because you would never be able to give me a reason to do it. So I will do it. Guess what? Today, what a release. Now, I want you to feel the tension right now. Because some of you guys feel very released to go off and pursue worldly pleasures. Wow, that's how God is. So this sin that I really kind of am all worked up about and I'm real bothered about, I just need to not be bothered about that. I just go do it again. Okay, if that's what you're hearing, you are flirting with understanding the grace of God. That's exactly what you should be wondering. Is this guy actually saying that? Okay, and I'm not even going to clarify that anymore. You should be flirting with, wow, I like this church. (laughs) Coming here naked next week. Um... Hebrews chapter 10. I will close with this. Matt, go ahead and come on up. Hebrews 10. Hebrews is a book that is simply a mind-blowing book when you understand 
what the Old Testament was teaching and how God has fulfilled it and started a new day in the new covenant. But let's act against the backdrop of all that we've discussed. Hebrews 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, right, can never make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. Right? If you brought this offering, now remember, their offerings are slain animals, washing your hands right. You know, you got all this way of doing stuff. Now, ours is different. We got a little different system of sacrifice that we're walking through these days. Right? So we're still presenting our offerings, but none of these things can take away sins. Otherwise, once you were cleansed, you'd stop offering it. Now, that's exactly what Christ did. Once he offered himself, once and for all, he stopped offering. Christ will never be offered again. Never be offered again. Because his was complete. But look what's built into this statement. If you keep on bringing these offerings, there is a reminder of sins every year. And a consciousness of sins. Now, if you're here today... And you're trying to do something to get on God's good side because of your sin. And you kind of bring your offerings. Your offerings look like, okay, I'm going to start coming to church every week. Start reading my Bible. Give me a reading Bible program. I'm going to pray this many hours a day. Okay, you're, you're loading up your offerings and here you go. You're going to come present them to God. Every time you touch one of those things now, you've externalized your religion. And guess what's going to happen? You're going to be reminded now of your sins. You're going to become more conscious of your failings, your sin, your falling short, because it's all about what you have to do to get God on your side. And then you're going to sin next week. And two days after that, worse than that one. And you're going to try and figure out, what do I have to do now to get God? And and what are you doing when you have to get God? You're figuring out what you got to do. But why do you have to do that? Because I sinned again. And see, there's a conscious reminder of your own sin. See, now when we externalize our religion, this is what we end up experiencing. We're just going through motions, constantly reminded of our sin. And all the I statements in Ezekiel have been lost somewhere. I'm just very aware of how I'm trying to fix how God feels about me right now. And how to keep walking. just read a few verses and then we'll close verse 11 every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, if that verse doesn't make you pause, you didn't read it carefully. Because it's confusing. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What does it mean to be sanctified? I'm in the process of being changed. Well, why would I need to be changed if I'm perfect? Okay, you're tracking with this verse? This verse should be confusing you. So I'm still changing. I'm still putting off sin and putting on new righteous patterns in my life. That's still going on, right? Yes, exactly. That's who you are. That's who the people of God are. 
And for all that that describes, God has already perfected you. Who are still undergoing change. See, it's real tempting to forget the perfected element of having been accepted completely by God, by God whose Son will never come back again to adjust anything. His work is done. The blood is shed. The fracture is over. Before God, I stand perfected, even while my practice is being adjusted and I'm being fixed on a day-to-day basis. And I'm aware that I still need to be fixed. But while I'm aware that I need to be fixed, am I aware that I am perfected before God? More so than my need to be fixed. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. This is Ezekiel and in Jeremiah. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there's forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, you should always pay careful attention why therefores are there. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh and since we have a great high priest over the house of God let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water Let us, see this is what grace does. Grace opens the way for me to draw near. And now guess what can happen in my life? Transformation, the presence of the Spirit of God, the working of the Spirit of God can take place in my life. Do you know how many Christians never get on the operating table of the Spirit? Because they don't walk in the grace of God. They never walk through the front door. This morning, this is where I wanted us to get and to stop. And hopefully the Holy Spirit has allowed us to see what God was saying when he said, there's coming a day when I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be, you will be cleansed from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. You, you will be perfect in my eyes. And the door of grace will be open to you completely. To come to me, the river of living water, the fountain of delights, the one thing that satisfies the soul of man. See, that doorway is open. Am I more aware of that than I am of my own sinful condition? Let's stand up together. Father, I I don't don't feel a moment here would be sufficient for us to traffic in the issues of our own lives that would touch what we've listened to this morning. So, Lord, would you take us beyond this service with this message to consider the ways in which 
frustration, condemnation, and guilt, and pride, and our pursuit of passing pleasures, Lord, how are those things revealing to us that whatever my form of religion is, it's falling woefully short of Ezekiel 36. And yet, Lord, today I want to just have a revelation in how it is that your grace has opened the way. Open the way to a new life. Newness of life is before me as never before. And I have access to it by your grace, because of your grace, only because of your grace. And Lord, I pray as we sing this song, Lord, would you let us know experientially what is it like to be cleansed? To have our eyes taken off of us because we no longer are enamored with the spots. Our eyes are gazing upon the one who cleaned us up, forgave us, and perfected us. Lord, draw our attention away from ourselves to you. In Jesus' name.